that principle uh, that the, uh, I consider one of the cores of, of the functional method of just um, observing and letting um, the conclusion come to you rather than you jumping to a conclusion or having a preconception about something, I think is the fundamental functional method that Reich used from the very beginning. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Our podcast is now available through Audible and Amazon Music. Both of these apps are also a place where you can write a review. I hope you'll consider leaving a review about what you enjoy. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We're interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at orgonomy.org. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at orgonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. In this episode, we hear from Peter Christ, MD, President of the American College of Organomy. He discussed with me a key concept of functional thinking and how it has had a profound impact on him from as early as his childhood observing birds to present day while grappling with the pandemic and political polarization. So Dr. Christ, you know, I'm really happy to be meeting with you today. I've been talking with some of the doctors in the ACO, and I've been interviewing them about, you know, how they learned about Reich and ergonomy and how that took them to where they are today through their medical training, uh, learning about medical orgone therapy. And you and I were talking about this a little bit, and you had a specific um, concept in mind when, when, when you were telling me about what brought you to learning more about ergonomy and Reich's work. And you mentioned what you've been saying in the seminar for the doctors, observe, observe, observe. So I wanted to talk with you today just to hear more about how that basic principle has affected you and, and, and kind of how it's um, come with you through this journey. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, I mean, it's my pleasure to be here. And one of the things that um, that that concept of observe, observe, observe until a conclusion comes to you, um, that comes from Reich. And I asked people if they could tell me if they knew exactly the reference. And um, our Swiss colleague, Dr. Foley, in, in uh, Switzerland, um, looked up the literature and he couldn't find it. He says, I think that's your original contribution. I said, no, I know that comes from Reich. I don't know where it comes from. But um, that principle uh, that I consider one of the cores of, of the functional method of just um, observing and letting um, the conclusion come to you rather than you jumping to a conclusion or having a preconception about something, I think is the fundamental functional method that Reich used from the very beginning. And so in the process of, of that being sort of in the background with me, I think it really came 
uh, very, very clear uh, to me when I uh, um, started being in charge of, of the ACO's um, uh, laboratory workshops in organ biophysics. And I realized that somehow very often in the courses uh, um, up to that point, we were often telling people what to look for. And I decided I wanted to just take a step back from that. And before any lectures, before any talks, just have people go and look uh, through the microscope or go out on the lawn and, and observe. And uh, it, it really was a simple but a profound thing for me to see how quickly people will jump to conclusions, how pick, uh, often people will say, well, I don't, I don't see anything, what am I supposed to see? And if we're really trying to observe nature and um, take on um, uh, some understanding of, the, of nature from nature itself, rather than our own ideas about it, we really have to um, allow ourselves to uh, take the time to observe and not jump to conclusions. And uh, the, there was one particular ex example uh, that was just so striking to me, and I've told it before, probably some of our audience has heard me tell it, but I'm going to tell it again. <laughs> such a wonderful example. We were out on the lawn, and I just asking people, you know, what do you observe? And some people said, well, the sky is blue, the grass is green, the, I, I smell a, a fresh smell coming from the grass. And one woman said, well, I saw a bird go into its nest in that bush. And I said, did you see a nest? And she said, well, no. I said, well, what made you say it went to, into a nest? Well, she, it was moving like it must have been going into something. And it was one of those moments that was both very helpful for her um, to see that tendency to put a few pieces of, of information, observations together, and then come up with a conclusion. And um, it, it um, at the end of the first course that we had for lay people, people without scientific training, I was very gratified when one of the people, a, a, an artist, a painter, said that bit about observing uh, until a conclusion comes to you. He said, that's going to affect the whole way I go about my day-to-day -day life. He said, my wife's always saying I'm jumping to conclusions. So uh, <laughs> very satisfying to, to hear just how someone could use that basic principle in, in their everyday life. So. Huh. Yeah. You know, um, that, You've been mentioning it in the seminars, and, it, and it's had a, a tremendous effect on me. And primarily, I've noticed it in you know my work as a doctor and a psychiatrist. And the way I've been able to help some of my patients sometimes, if, you know, there was someone actually just recently who had a kind of strange symptom, and it wasn't clear kind of how that fit into the puzzle of, of what was going on. And I literally said that, you know, let's observe it and, and mm -hmm. wait and, and figure out what to make of it as it comes to us. And, and the patient kind of was like, okay, yeah, like, and mm -hmm. it really made sense. Like, we're not just going to say this is what it is, because sometimes it's not always clear right from the get go, uh, what to make of it. And, and I've actually used that numerous times, uh, just saying, let's not jump to conclusion. Let's kind of continue to, to look at it. Yeah. And it's been helpful for me. 
Yeah, good. Uh, no, that's great. And and that's um, uh, it's interesting. Um, you know that I uh, have been writing memoir stories, and I was writing them about my medical training, and somehow it it sparked me to. Uh, someone suggested that I read books by doctors about uh, that that I might be able to use as examples of of where I would pitch my own book. Um, and one of the book I read a number of books written by doctors just about uh, um, their experiences and so forth. But one was uh, I think Jerome Groupman is his name. He wrote a, a book called How Doctors Think. And there was one piece that he had very early in the book, he, he said, studies show that on average, a doctor will interrupt a patient's story after, on, on average, 16 seconds after the patient started talking. And he said, if you do that, you're not going to hear what the patient really has to say. You've already come up with a preconception of what the diagnosis is or what uh, the problem is. And he said, often doctors can get away with that, but it was one of those great examples of he's, he, without you knowing the terms we use, he was uh, decrying the lack of a functional approach. And uh, you see that if, you know, well, I mean, uh, I'm, at least I, I experienced that taking 45 minutes with a patient, many of them will bring up medical problems that their own doctors have not really taken the time to go into because it takes time to allow a conclusion to come to you. So in, in the process of looking at this, one of the things that I uh, realized is, therefore, if we're not gonna jump to conclusions, we have to know the difference between an observation and a conclusion. So as you know, in, in our seminars, that's what I focus on at the beginning is, what are our observations of the patient? Uh, and if we're really going to have a, a true functional approach and understand the patient, you have to let the story come to you rather than you superimposing your idea of the patient on it. And I think that's a major error in medicine and in psychiatry these days. Yeah, you know, that again, that's been very helpful for me. So, you know, we might make an observation of the the patient's masochistic, but that's not the observation, that's the conclusion. So what is it? that the patient does, how do they function, that we can come to that conclusion. And, right. and yes, I just to take a step back and really, I guess it's almost perceiving how you're perceiving in a way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even just going into non-psychiatric non medicine, I, I think there's so much of, of modern practice that you don't even have time necessarily just to sit and, and think about your interactions with a patient to allow those conclusions to come up. You know, it's not just in the interaction with the, the patient, but, you know, time in between them or time at the end of the day to really kind of make sense of, of what's happening and, and allow that to come up spontaneously. Right, right. And that was one of the things with, with uh, Dr. Grubman's book is, is he said many people think that if there's a, a difficult diagnosis to make, the thing to do is to go to a specialist. He said it's actually the opposite. The specialist already is narrowly focused. You actually want a, a generalist, uh, an mm -hmm. internist who who has the broadest view if you're going to try to just observe things and see, well, could it be that? Could it be that? So uh, I don't know. His, um, I, I hadn't planned to talk so much about his book, but this principle just applies in, in so many areas of, of uh, uh, 
how how we function as doctors um, and uh, other situations. The I mean, and I found it in my business consulting. There was a, a great little example where um, the new CEO, who I have uh, weekly meetings with, um, told me, uh, "Well, we need to hire a new um, director of of operations." And um, I said. Well, that's that's a conclusion. So let's go back. What are your observations <laughs> that lead you to that conclusion? And he said, "Well, I just know that I can't do those things since I'm now in the CEO." And I said, "Well, go on, tell me more." And and he gave me one uh, situation after another. I came to the same conclusion. Yes, you need to hire this new person. He said. Yeah, but that, this was really good because now when I go back to the owners of the company, I'm going to be able to know exactly what to tell them why we need this. And so, again, it, it was sort of a different take on the, that same principle, but again, very useful, just separating out observations from conclusions. You know, the way you just described that, it, it's almost like, you know, people have gut feelings about things and it sounded like this person did and maybe he I don't know if it's unconscious or some part of him kind of worked through that, but didn't really have it in his conscious mind about why he was making that decision. And that's what allowed him to, to kind of go backwards and, and, and look through it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know. And, and I think that uh, when I've talked about uh, observations and, and conclusions, the other thing I've separated out uh, when we're, talking about social ergonomy, especially in the social realm, um, the equivalent is separating out facts from, from opinions. And uh, the tendency has been, I think, for people to take what I'm saying as, well, therefore it has to be dry like um, uh, Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> but one observation may be just a gut feeling. Or an, another fact may be, all right, I'm feeling anxious now, or all right, I'm feeling excited now. And, and so that's, I, I think that's part of what excited me about Reich's work from the beginning, is he was talking about taking a scientific approach to subjective things like emotions and relationships and how things happen. And it's the integration of that sort of visceral intuitive sense with the cognitive details that that is a dynamite combination because if you just have the details and not that gut sense it doesn't carry much weight if you have the gut sense but you can't uh, explain the details it's hard to get that across um, you know <laughs> it feels quite apropos to our current times you know people have there's that slogan now, trust the science. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and yet there's people who have gut feelings that they have, you know, they're, they're not sure, they're mm -hmm. not sure who to trust. Uh, do they trust their own feelings? Do they trust an expert? Um, but before we get into that, I'm curious, when did it start when you discovered Reich's work and, and how did that process yeah. unfold? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, glad you went back to that because when you said you know, you talk with others how they got interested in ergonomy and, and uh, became ergonomists. That's a whole other story that I would love to um, sit down and talk with you about at some point. But I want to just sort of keep this narrowly focused. And recently, as I've been uh, emphasizing observations versus conclusions, I realized 
I have been uh, an observer from really as young as I can remember. I mean, I uh, my favorite place was the woods. I would go out and just um, watch the squirrels, watch the birds, um, and 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 again, as as I said, I think that's why when I I was very interested in science. I loved science, um, and it it was, um, but it was in my eighth grade science class uh, where the the teacher was talking about um, some of the laws the the laws of physics and he talked about coefficient of friction and I said what is a coefficient I've never seen a coefficient <laughs> felt one and and it it puzzled me for the longest time and finally I, I was able to get him to explain it and he said uh, well it's just a number you put in an equation so it balances I said, okay, it's not real. It doesn't mean anything, but it has some significance. So that was an example of me wanting to, to find, well, how, how does this, um, how can we really observe uh, these things that people use words for? And, and I, I loved watching birds and, and probably it was in sixth grade when I either bought or was given, I can't even remember my first um, Roger Torrey Peterson uh, field guide to North American birds. And it just helped me look up things. And, and what I realized though, is other people that were interested in, in birds seemed like they wanted to keep a list of all the ones they had seen. And there was a place at the back of the book for your life list. And I, I felt like, well, I should be recording every bird I see and what species it is and its name. And I just wasn't interested in that. I just wanted to watch them. And um, so I think that's an example of how much it's, it's about the observation. It's not about coming to the conclusion that's just been deep in me mm. um, very early on. And there's an interesting thing about that. Um, there's a quarry in, in Hopewell, New Jersey, about 20 minutes from us, that back in the 20s, it hit a spring and it filled up with water. And ever since then, it's been a, a swimming hole and then it was turned into a swim club. And so we've gone there every year, I don't know, for decades now. And some time ago, there was um, uh, a pair of green herons that, that nested there. And one of them, um, I would, I love to just lie in the inner tube and float out near where it was and watch it. So it stood on a log and uh, uh, one day I, I saw it standing there and it reached up and grabbed a dragonfly out of the middle, out of midair. And then it, I thought it was going to eat it, but instead it dropped it in the water and it drifted along and it picked it up again, dropped it. It drifted along until finally a fish came up to get the dragonfly and it grabbed the fish. I said, the green heron is fishing with dragonflies and, and I went and, and talked to somebody who's an avid bird watcher I said I saw this and 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 um, he said I never heard of such a thing and then years later I happened to run into somebody who it turns out she had gone to the quarry swim club many years I'd seen her I'd not known her name but we ended up talking I said do you remember the green heron? He said, oh yeah, the one that fished? I said, absolutely. I said, I told a, an avid bird watcher a, about uh, uh, that. Um, and he said he'd never seen it. And she said, the problem is most people who call themselves bird watchers are not bird watchers, they're bird identifiers. 
And I thought, ah, that's a great distinction is I'm a bird watcher. I'm not a bird identifier. I mean, yeah, it's nice to know this is a cardinal, this is whatever, but it's, yeah. it's just watching them is what I love. Huh. <laughs> wow. So, so that, this basic thing of distinguishing, I mean, you know, a name for a bird is a conclusion. Yeah. So, just as I've said in our seminars, a diagnosis of a patient is a conclusion. So we want to be sure that our conclusions are based on the observations who this person really is. I'm curious, do you, do you ever get pushback when, when you mention that? You know, because we're, there's some people and, and some of us with certain things, maybe we're just so, we, we just have that tendency to jump to a conclusion that if you stop someone, there may be some friction or irritation. Do you, do you ever get that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Early in my marriage, I, I said to my wife, you're jumping to conclusions. She said, if it were an Olympic sport, I'd be a gold medalist. You know, So we could uh, joke about it. But, you know, I mean, she, she, you know, Peter, the rock, she, she says, you know, uh, you're my rock. And I said, you're the one that sort of gets me going. And, it, and that difference, she said, but when you won't come to a conclusion, it's just frustrating. <laughs> so, so there's the flip side of both. Some people will jump to a conclusion and that's what we call, a, you know, somebody who's good at that, I think is taking in observations uh, much faster than other people. Someone that we call very intuitive. They're just taking in more observations and they may come up with a good conclusion it just may not be in that uh, intellectual way. So each person is 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 different. Um, yeah, you know, it makes me think of just again. We've talked about the pandemic, and I'm thinking of actually the first thought I had was just someone you know who works for a paramedic or a police officer. They don't necessarily have the 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 time to to come up with full observation or, or allow a spontaneous conclusion. Um, other than maybe their, their prior experience to use in a, a snap judgment. Yeah, I mean, it's called a snap judgment, but, but going back to the, the lab course, the, the, the talk that I loved giving was, we called it the role of the observer in natural science. And what I realized, that's when I really formulated much more clearly this whole thing about observe and, and come to a spontaneous conclusion. And it was in... Uh, that course that it dawned on me is that people uh, can handle, uh, well, when, when you are in a new situation, there's uncertainty. And, and that's what I realized is with uncertainty, people will feel anxious. That's an absolutely natural response to uncertainty is, is just, oh, what's going to happen? Where, where are we going? And I realized people can either jump to a conclusion to avoid the anxiety, or they cannot engage and fail to ever come to a conclusion. And those are, I think, two tendencies that, that you can see. So that either one in and of itself is, is not pathological, but if it's used as an automatic defense, it can become a problem. And in, I, I think in, in our earlier talks about the pandemic, that's one of the things I realized is early on, I was waiting to come to a conclusion about whether it was safe to be seeing people um, uh, in person or, or not. And it, it was my wife and a friend who basically said, wait a minute, 
until you're trying to figure out, you, you could get infected. So I realized my tendency to want to observe tends to be on the, the side of delaying conclusions, even when it would be better to come to a, a, a premature conclusion. But again, my point that I tell people over and over, if you do that consciously and make a decision, then you can say, all right, that was a premature conclusion or it wasn't or, or whatever. Yeah. You can kind of learn from it and, and, and be clear with yourself about what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds just similar to when we talk about someone's character in, mm -hmm. a, in a broader sense. You know, someone can be naturally aggressive, but if they're using that aggression unconsciously as a defense, then, then it's pathologic. But if it's uh, just coming out in a natural way and that's what they are intending to doing, then it can actually get them very far. Yeah. 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 Mm. I had a couple of other things that, that I wanted to mention about uh, that came to my mind recently as I was thinking about this. Sure. How, um, if you want, how early that quality uh, was there in me of wanting to just observe. Um, yeah, I'm curious. And uh, uh, one, uh, one example was uh, in my uh, um, college physics course. Uh, I was sitting there hearing the professor talk about um, the electrons doing this, the electrons doing that. And I said, sat there and I said, I've never seen an electron. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> about them, like they're things that we see every day. And, and I said, that's, I wonder how did they come up to, and, and that I was quite clear, how did they come to the conclusion that there are electrons? And I thought, boy, that would be interesting to go back and, and look at, at many of the, the um, accepted theories in science are conclusions. So how did they come to those conclusions? So I wrote up a proposal for an independent major on the development of modern science that I thought, wouldn't that be great to go back and, and repeat those classic experiments that led to these conclusions. And so I uh, made a meeting with the, my physics professor um, and I'd written this up and he looked at it and he said, that's not true. We observe electrons. I said, well, I've never seen one. He said, you see them in, in cloud chambers all the time. You, you have evidence of them. And I realized he didn't quite get what I was talking about. I thought he was quite open-minded, which is why I went to, to him. Uh, rather than people in the, the biology department, no, the zoology department, which was my major. And he, he said, um, you know, I, 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 there's no way that, that I would, um, uh, uh, I, I would take on trying to sponsor an independent major like this. He said, but you're more, more interested in, in biology and zoology, and it looks like you want to become a, a pre-med um, I'll send your proposal down to the person in charge of the curriculum in the biology department. I said, okay. So um, I then made an appointment. I, I've forgotten what his name was, but uh, he was um, maybe the vice chairman of the department, but he was an, uh, um, an ichthyologist who uh, advised students about their curriculum. And I sat down with him and he, he said, 
I read your proposal. He said, there's no way I can support you in doing this proposal, but I figured out how we can have you graduated in a year and a half. I thought, okay, if that's my choice, let me get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, boy, what a cold fish this ichthyologist is. (laughs) And, and he's, but then he said, but um, there's an emeritus professor, and again, I can't remember his name. He said uh, he's very interested in the history of science, and that's really what you're talking about. Maybe while you're just finishing up your degree, you could meet with him informally and just talk about the history of science. I said, okay, great. And, and he said, I'll, I'll send it, him your proposal. And so a couple of days later, I was at home. I got a call. Um, and it was this emeritus professor. He said, I read your proposal. I'm very interested. Um, would you come in and talk with me? So I, I was excited, you know, at that point. So I went in and um, he, he said, what, what you're uh, talking about is the problem of dogma in science. And I said, wow, okay, this guy gets what I'm talking about. And, and he said, I don't know if you know that William Harvey, who's um, famous for discovering the circulation of, of the blood, never published his work in, in his native England. He pub- I said, I didn't know that. I said, where did he publish it? He said he published it on the continent in Latin. I said, why was that? He said, and he quoted something from, I think, a, a um, journal of Harvey's and, and said um, uh, he, he didn't publish it in, in England because uh, the views are so deeply held that he feared for his life. And when, when this professor said that to me, I said, wow. And I, I said to him, it just makes me wonder who right now is not publishing things because they fear for their life. And he said, well, Dr. Theodore Jan down the hall with the lab down the hall. I said, what? He said, yes. I said, well, what is he, what are his ideas that, that are, are, um, don't fit the dogma? And he said, Dr. Jan says that he doesn't think osmosis is, is a significant factor in biology. Um, he said he, he accepts it's a physical um, principle. Um, and I said, what does he think is going on? And he, he said, he has the idea that there's a property of protoplasm that draws water uh, to it. And I thought, that's very interesting. And, and I said, you know, what, are there other things? He said, yes, he doesn't think there, um, the theory of the sodium potassium membrane pump uh, holds any weight. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> For any basic science student, you know, yes. That, that's... Yes, that's, that's dogma. Yeah. And, and, and so... Um, he, he said, also, he has some ideas about the electrical membrane potential that people say is based on the uh, sodium-potassium uh, um, membrane uh, pump. And I said, I've got to see if I can take a course with Dr. Jan. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, for the next quarter, I signed up for one of his... Intro- he, so Dr. Jan was a, a protozoologist, um, and so I signed up for one of his um, introduction to protozoology courses. And I'll never forget the first day sitting down uh, in his class, he hands out a syllabus. And uh, the, I think the very first line is, um, 
the sodium potassium membrane pump, does it exist? Is it necessary? And, um, you know, I saw people sort of looking puzzled and I, I was, you know, intrigued at that point. And uh, he asked people, you know, he said, they said, what do, what do you mean? I mean, of course it exists. And, and he said, well, my answers to those two questions are, is it does it exist? No, there's no evidence that it does. Is it necessary? Absolutely. <laughs> and people were sort of looking around and he, he said, people need an explanation. He said the Romans didn't understand that the earth turned. So they had um, a, a, the god Helios pump the sun from one side of the sky to the other every day. He said, people need an explanation, but there's really no scientific evidence that the sodium potassium membrane pump exists. <laughs> and then he started into, um, so, somebody said, well, but there's higher concentration of potassium inside of cells. How do you explain that? He said, um, and, and he gave, I mean, he was very, very uh, well-trained in classical physics, chemistry, and, and biology. And he gave some um, uh, explanations, and I don't remember the details of them, but that um, he, he said, there's a property of protoplasm that we don't really quite understand yet that draws potassium to it. And that's what makes for the differential between inside and outside the cell. And so one of the students, I remember uh, his name, he, he said, Dr. Chen, what you're saying violates the second law of thermodynamics, which for those who uh, are unfamiliar with it is the idea that um, the universe is mechanical and energy is always running downhill and from a high energy level to a, uh, things run down to a low energy level. And so Dr. Jen turned to and said, Steve, if the second law of thermodynamics applied to biology, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> so you know enough about Reich and ergonomy to, to know why that just uh, struck such a chord. You know? Yeah. I mean, Reich discovered the organotic potential that a higher energy concentration will draw energy to it. And then there's a discharge so that there's a, a cycle. But Dr. Jan with classical training um, understood something uh, about all that. And, hmm. and he, I mean, he, he had been the chairman of the department of biology. They split it up into zoology and botany. I think that may be when he was no longer uh, the chairman um, but his, his work um, uh, was so well respected that, I, you, um, you know, that, that he had a solid place in the department. I went to a departmental... I mean, he had the foundation to be able to question these kinds of things. He had, he had the foundation to question those things. I mean, it's, it, it, it's the same thing that, that Reich talked about is, is learn the basic uh, principles before you start challenging them, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, so he, he was invited to give a talk in the, in the zoology department, it would be the equivalent in medicine of grand rounds. I don't know, remember what they call it, but like a, a weekly conference where some, an expert comes in and he gave his talk about the, um, 
electrical potential, uh, uh, the, the membrane potential. And the chairman of, of zoology, this young guy, again, I can't remember his name, but young guy, um, blonde, uh, sort of, um, uh, what's the, like, full of himself kind of attitude. Uh -huh. But he said, Dr. after the talk, he said, Dr. Jan, what you said, that's very interesting. But you understand, a few hundred years ago, we would have taken you out and burnt you at the stake in the quad. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yep. Wow. So, I mean, he said it presumably jokingly, but it did not feel like a joke. No. Yeah. You know, that. I, I, um, again, I asked you earlier, you know, does that irritate people? But that, that shows that for some, there's a very deep... Uh, yeah tendency to, to want to not, you know, learn more to, to stay with whatever anxiety there is of not knowing. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm. yeah one, one last thing about Dr. Jan, I mean, as a protozoologist, he did high speed films of the movement of the cilia in protozoa in um, paramecium. So the, he said the classical theory is that paramecium uh, moved by beating, beating the cilia like uh, the oars of a Roman galley. He said, uh, and he showed us the, the film, and he said, when you, once you look at it in high speed, that's not at all what happens. What happens is there's a traveling spiral wave that moves down each cilia, and it changes direction simply by moving the direction of the cilium. And he said, I showed this film uh, to, after I first made it, I showed it to a major protozoology conference, and a woman came up to me afterwards and said, Dr. Jen, that, that was a very interesting film, but I don't believe it. So he really understood how people could just be blind yeah. by their, their dogma. So. Wow. You know, that, that makes me think of, of you. I, I don't remember where we were, but we were talking about just one of Reich's um, experiments with the skin potential. And mm -hmm. now we have modern technology where, you know, that can be one of the great advances of modern technology that it can help you observe better. Yeah. And that's what that example sounds like, you know, yeah. um, a way of doing that. Yeah. Wow. So maybe bringing some of this back to uh, some of the things that have happened in the, in the last year. I mean, yeah. you may have talked about it, but it, it's just come home to me just so clearly in this last year how difficult it is for people to to do that separate out observations from conclusions and um, I mean if, if you think back early on um, with the pandemic uh, people bringing groceries home and washing them in bleach or, or wiping down everything and I think now we have enough information to that, that it's pretty solidly uh, clear that that the likelihood of getting um, the coronavirus uh, infection from packaging or from surfaces is very, very low. Yeah. Um, so, but you know that uh, there are still people that that information is out there, and they're still going through all of those same uh, uh, rituals. Um, and and to me, you know, the, one of Reich's great um, contributions was clarifying that the 
two forms of armored thinking are mechanistic thinking and mystical thinking, as opposed to what we, we're trying to uh, allow ourselves to do, functional thinking. So, you know, going through that, the mechanics of wiping everything down with this mystical, magical idea, that's going to uh, prevent infection. So, and and it, almost everything you, you look at, uh, there is that tendency towards mechanomystical thinking. Yeah, I have a patient who still um, is wiping things down. Um, she just got her second dose of the vaccine. And when I asked her about, you know, is she planning on doing things differently? And she said, I know I don't have to wipe things down, but I don't know where to draw the line now. So I just have to keep doing it. Right. And so I think it's good that it's clear in her mind that it's yeah. conscious, yeah. but it's still too much for her to, to change her routine because of her anxiety about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have no problem if people, um, uh, approach it like if the so-called scientists would approach it that way um, and just say, you know, we don't know, but uh, I mean, I, I think the, the uh, honest ones have done that o over the course, but uh, you know, that's, I think that's an ongoing you know, problem. I'm reminded of, uh, you know, what someone once said that, that Reich, Reich's ideas about psychopathology can all be boiled down to human psychopathology is based on the fear of the spontaneous. And that's what we're dealing with every day. Um, people are terrified of just letting things uh, happen or not knowing until something will spontaneously occur. Yeah. And I, I see it with the, the vaccine too. Uh, you know, when you mentioned that, um, there, there's a, this weird attitude that, that I've felt people say, did you get your vaccine yet? Like the assumption is, of course, you're going to. Um, and a certain, so I was talking about it with a friend and trying to put a finger on what is, there's, there's a tone like uh, it's, it has, it's more serious than a fad, but it's almost like a fad. Did, you know, did you get your bobby socks, you know, your, your saddle shoes yet? I mean, from back in the 50s or, or you know, it, it, it's like, of course, everybody is in on that. And if you raise questions or concerns, that is really just, I don't know if you've seen that, but that's really. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's again, like, there's nothing that's like safe to talk about. And that's another example of yeah. Like, what's the right answer? You know, it sounds like I have to say yes, but you know, but, but what about this that I, you know, like yeah. uh, there, there's, it's kind of like this judgmental pressure, but um, yeah, I, I felt that, you know, and, and when people ask other people, there's almost this accusatory kind of you know, feel yeah. to it. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, um, one of the essential features of, of, an armored approach is moralism. And, and so I, I feel that there's moralistic uh, attitudes about, uh, um, you know, and, and that happens, it gets um, polarized and, and in some ways uh, politicized too. You know, it's like somebody used the term, it, it becomes tribal. Well, are you in my tribe or, or against my tribe? I did run across a, uh, a podcast of a couple of evolutionary biologists talking about uh, the vaccine in probably what I thought was one of the most, um, what would you call it, uh, truly open-minded scientific ways. And, and they said, you know, I, 
I'm not, not an anti-vaxxer. I hope this is, um, is going to turn out as great as, as people say, but the truth is we cannot know the long-term effects for five, 10 years. And they said, if you really wanted to do a, uh, use a scientific approach, you would not give this new kind of messenger RNA vaccine to all of the frontline medical people, because if there is a problem, you'd wipe out all of those people. Why not give it to a third of them and see uh, what happens? I thought, boy, that would be a true scientific approach. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, we, we mentioned the vaccine. Um, I- you and Dr. Chask are doing the sociopolitical discussion group. Right. Have, have you seen um, observations, jump to conclusions? How have you seen it play out there and in your work? <laughs> um, absolutely <laughs> playing out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the sociopolitical realm is, is one of the most intense realms where, where people jump to conclusions. Uh, I, I mean, People are doing it in all aspects of their life, but uh, it's been a struggle in that group to to get people to just make observations and and not jump to conclusions. And I I felt good. The last one that we did, I thought um, the one of the um, uh, exercises I had people do was send in headlines both from a liberal perspective and from a conservative perspective. And let's look at those headlines and see if we can identify what is fact in the headline and what is opinion. So as I said earlier, in the social realm, the equivalent of observations and conclusions, I think is fact and opinion. And uh, someone just going one after the other after another, having people uh, do that exercise. Um, is this fact? Is this opinion? I think was extremely helpful in getting people developing a discipline of doing that. And and in fact, uh, I would encourage any of the listeners of this podcast to to use that as as a simple means of working on your ability to differentiate those. Is is when you're reading something identify what is fact in it and what is opinion in it uh, and what's based on observations, what's based on, on conclusions. Mm. So yeah, in, in the sociopolitical realm, uh, uh, it, things are so uh, heated and, and excited that it's um, probably one of the more, more than most other areas of our lives these days. And, and, why is that? It's hard to, to say, but, you know, Dr. Baker in his book, Man in the Trap, had, had the chapter on the sociopolitical character types. And he, he was really the first, I think, to, to spell out um, the sociopolitical character as a separate, not separate, but a, a distinct function from individual character. And he I, I, I'll paraphrase it. I can't remember exactly how he put it, but he, he said um, there, there used to be uh, the sacred cows of sex, religion, um, and, uh, and politics. He said sex has now become passe. This was in the late 60s. You know? Religion is sort of nobody's that interested in it. Uh, that may have changed some since 1967. And politics. And he, he said... Um, 
politics seems to be the sacred cow that it's not okay to look at it objectively. And he said, I fully expect tremendous attacks on my work for having uh, tried to present sociopolitical things in an objective scientific way. And when um, Paul Matthews and John Bell gave the, the course at NYU, uh, there were lectures on that topic, and there there were people who came in, demonstrated, and disrupted the lectures. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but this was back in the 70s. Um, a little bit of ergonomic history that probably has not been adequately recorded. Uh, yeah. But, but, you know, but that's... Again, what, what Dr. Baker, if I'm hearing you correctly, is saying is let's observe what's happening in the sociopolitical realm. That's right. Let's uh, let's try to observe it and look at it objectively rather than jump to a political conclusion. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's like these people are not only closing their own eyes, but wanting uh, us all to close our eyes. That's their way of, of handling it, it sounds like. You know? Very good point. Yeah. No, I hadn't put that together quite that way. Yeah, very good point. It's If someone wants to close their eyes, that's not that big a deal. But if they say, you got to close your eyes too, uh, that's a problem. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I, I, I just want to underscore, I, I, I think this one little piece of the functional uh, method of distinguishing observations from conclusions, I, I think is so uh, profoundly significant. Um, and, and as I said, if you start looking for it, you'll see it crop up absolutely everywhere of the difficulty people uh, have in doing that. So, you know, Dr. Baker in, in his book defines functional thinking very simply as thinking as nature functions, but that, that's a little bit solipsistic. So, so then how does nature function? But if we think about it, our understanding uh, as ergonomists is the essence of how nature functions is spontaneous movement of an underlying mass-free energy. You know? And the problem is that starts to sound weird and woo-woo if, when people hear that, but that's really um, what ergonomy is about. And functional thinking, I think, is allowing a spontaneous process to get in alignment with a spontaneous process of nature so that you come to a conclusion that's based on nature rather than your own internal uh, preconceptions. And mm -hmm. so just being able to distinguish observation from conclusion is a simple but, but absolutely useful tool uh, that we can use to, to help people do that. And if we can get that piece across, I, I think it would make a huge difference in the world if people can just start um, knowing, okay, I've jumped to a conclusion or knowing I'm, I'm uh, giving an opinion that's not based on fact and, and so forth. And that's my, my hope. And I, I guess that's was really my motivation in wanting to have this conversation with you and get it out there is I think this piece is something that could make a huge difference in the world. If we can just uh, convey it to more people. And, and you're saying you see it every day in, in your work and life and other people I've been talking about it with it, tell me the same. And if, if I can help people, um, look at things more clearly, um, I, that means the world to me. Yeah. No, it, it helps me feel optimistic about, uh, about the future. Yeah, yeah, me too. 
Me too. It, it, it's so simple, like you said, so simple and so profound. So, so thank you for yeah. for emphasizing it. And you know. Yeah, you're welcome. No, that that's interesting when you say say that. I, I hadn't thought about that. Many people are get ahead of themselves into the future. That's a form of jumping to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can just stay in the present and allow ourselves to go into the future. Yeah. And well, thank you, Dr. Chris. This has been wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for, for hosting it. Yeah. And you're very welcome. I, I really appreciate your time. How do you feel after hearing this discussion? What do you think? Will you look at news headlines and reflect on what is fact and what is opinion? How might further observation and avoiding jumping to a conclusion affect your relationships? We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at ergonomy.org. Stay tuned for our next episode, and we'd love to have you join us for our live monthly webinars. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at ergonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast with the ACO. Since 1968, psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward often without the use of medication. Mm-hmm.